Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today I'm joined by Trina Tazeros. She leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. Well, today is Science Day on the Next in Health podcast. So we've got a few really neat uh, subjects to cover. But let's start with super spreading events. And we've had a recent super spreading event with some studies that have come out showing what can happen when large groups of people get together. Hint, it's not good. Trina, tell us about it. Sure, sure. So this is a study that just came out by some researchers affiliated with IZA, which is a labor economics group supported by the Deutsche Post Foundation and affiliated with the University of Bonn and also the Center for Health Economics and Policy Studies at San Diego State University. And they decided to look at a potential super spreading event that we've all been watching and wondering about, which was the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally that was held August 7th to the 16th in Meade County in Sturgis, South Dakota, population 7,000. And 460,000 motorcyclers made their way from all parts of the USA to Sturgis during that period of time. And everybody kind of has been watching to see what came out of it. And the truth is, it's not that easy to figure this out because folks go to Sturgis and they enjoy the motorcycle rally and then they go home and it's not like they're signing up with public health folks on the way in, on the way out and telling them whether they got, you know, COVID-19 and they're not checking in if they do come down with it. So it's been kind of a question, what happened out of that motorcycle rally? And so what these labor economists did is they looked at cell phone data, cell phones traveling to Sturgis, staying in Sturgis, and then leaving Sturgis. And they could tell a whole bunch of things about what happened out of that. They could tell how much people were going into different venues. They could tell how many folks living in Sturgis and in Meade County, which is the county that Sturgis is in, what people there were doing. Were they interacting with the rally? Were they participating in the rally or did they stay home? And then they can tell where all the cyclers went after they left. And then they could look at sort of what happened with cases in the counties that those folks went back to. And so that was one way that you could kind of say, okay, did the motorcycle rally have an effect on counties that had a lot of Sturgis motorcycle ralliers come back home to? And so the answer is, Yes. (laughs) So that was kind of the end result is that this Sturgis motorcycle rally, in the end, counties that had a lot of ralliers, I think you can call them, come back to them, had significant increases in cases within the month after the rally. So between the rally and and September 2nd is the period that they looked at. Now, in a way, the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally was kind of a worst case scenario super spreading event in that it was a prolonged event. Individuals were packed closely together. You have 460,000 people coming to this tiny little place. There was a large out-of-town population coming to a tiny population community. That's another sort of worst case scenario super spreading event factor. There was low compliance with recommended infection countermeasures. And if you look at enough pictures of the rally and people partying there, there were not a lot of masks or social distancing going on. There was a few things on the pro side in terms of sort of better for the pandemic than worse. A lot of uh, the events took place outside and 
South Dakota has a very low population density to begin with. So it's not like they were coming to a very dense place. They were coming to a very low density kind of place. So the spread, if it was going to happen, you know, wouldn't be in a place like New York City. So that is the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally setup. And the other piece that I'll say is that that sort of made it a worst case scenario is that South Dakota turns out to be one of the most lightly regulated COVID states in the U.S., doesn't have mask wearing mandates, no travel restrictions, no restrictions on large gatherings, leaves the school restarts up to the district, full indoor dining permitted, no work from home requirements, no temperature screenings. And this is all per the researchers who did this study. The city of Sturgis itself did put some kinds of measures in place to try to protect the population. They tested rally workers and emergency responders. They did health screenings on them. They stocked PPE. They put into place a plan for hospitals. If there was a surge in cases, they they had a plan in place for that. They did a lot of hand sanitizing and they had hand sanitizer dispensers in public locations all over the place. They sanitized restaurants. So they were trying to sort of mitigate as they could. And the big music festival that occurs during the rally, the Sturgis Buffalo Chip Music Festival, required attendees to bring masks with them, but did not require them to wear the masks. And they put up some signs trying to encourage social distancing. But, you know, the amount of compliance with those measures is is uncertain. So what happened? Like I said, if you look at uh, cell phone data, you see, first of all, that, that a lot of motorcycle rally participants came from areas that actually had surges in cases at the time. So they were more likely than, say, someone coming from a very low case state to end up in Sturgis positive for the virus. So that's one piece of it that you see if you look at the map. South and the West were surging, and particular in the West, people rode their bikes up to South Dakota from the West. And then they went back home. And so if they were infected at the motorcycle rally, then they, they rode back home, and then they were more likely to spread it to, to other folks in their home county, their friends, their family, people that they're interacting with at work, perhaps. And so that is where the researchers wanted to look, is what happened in those home counties. And in particular, the home counties that had a lot of motorcyclers coming back to it had a significant increase in cases. The counties that contributed the highest inflows of Sturgis attendees saw COVID-19 cases rise by 10% following the event. So this is, you know, where you can say, looks like the rally led to an increase in cases. Looks like, right? So this is this is just one study, but they, they show that. They also showed that both Meade County and South Dakota had an increase in cases following the rally. And we've seen that South Dakota and North Dakota actually are both, you know, sort of seeing a surge in cases right around now, beginning of September. And tying that to the rally specifically is is not a simple process, but you can sort of infer that the rally had something to do with the increase in cases. So that's the uh, the other piece of this that I think the researchers point out is that it mattered the policies that the counties had that the ralliers came from. So counties that had sort of high restrictions, a lot of restrictions on, um, you know, requiring masks, having travel restrictions, all of these different pieces, they were less likely to show an increase in cases after the ralliers came back compared with 
um, counties that had very few restrictions that had sort of weak mitigation policies. And so one of the takeaways from this particular study is that it appears that these policies are protective for folks coming back from a potentially super spreading event somewhere else, that the policies that a state has in place can help protect everybody else in that state from that outbreak that might have happened you know, a thousand miles away. Well, a lot to learn from the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. It, it, it kind of reminds me of the case study you were talking about in a, a few episodes ago about the summer camp and creating a bubble. In some ways, this was a bubble as well, except those in the bubble were not practicing social distancing or wearing masks. So it, it kind of had the incubator effect. Yes, that's a good way. That's a good way to think about it. Definitely. Well, let's turn our attention to uh, our second topic for Science Day. And and we're going to actually go to a, a different part of the world over to Iceland, where we're learning a bit more about antibodies in a population. I think Iceland's a, a unique place for study because there's so much genetic data available about the Icelandic population. So let's dive in. What are we learning from Iceland? Yeah. So this study, is called Humoral Immune Response to SARS-CoV-2 in Iceland. It's published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it helps point to an answer to a question that's been dogging us, right? So by midsummer this year, a group of studies came out that pointed to waning antibody immunity to SARS-CoV-2. So the, the worry was, oh my goodness, if you get infected with the virus, Shortly thereafter, could your immunity to it be waning and you're sort of back at square one, right? And so this this was sort of raised by several different studies. And some of the studies showed that the antibody response was inversely correlated to disease severity. So if you had sort of a, that you could have an asymptomatic infection and then you wouldn't produce any antibodies at all or very, very sort of weak immune response. And so this was a big question that has been, you know, sort of bandied about. And so this study came out of, like you said, Ben, Iceland, which has a small population and has historically had the ability to do pretty amazing things with that small population. And so what they did was they tested 15% of the entire population for infection with SARS-CoV-2 by PCR and antibody testing. They tested 30,000 people, people that had exposures in hospitals, in the community, households. They kind of did a random kind of sampling. And the interesting piece, there are many interesting pieces of this, but the part that kind of goes to this antibody question is that they followed antibody levels and durability over four months and didn't just look for 28 days, which is what the previous studies had looked at. So instead of 28 days, they looked for four months. And what they found was that, and this is the good news, is that antibodies remain stable. And this is what the researchers wrote, or actually a commentary in the New England Journal of Medicine wrote, that antibodies remain stable over four months after diagnosis. And so this sort of pushes back on this idea that your immune response after a few months, you're sort of back at square one, which is kind of what some of the, the folks have worried about. I'll caveat all of this with the note that the immune system is incredibly complicated and that even that idea that 
antibodies wane after two months and so you're back at square one ignores just the complexity of the immune response in people. And so even that, you know, wasn't really a, a it's a sort of an oversimplification of what might have happened. But this in particular showed that antibodies, like I said, remain stable over four months after diagnosis. So it kind of pushes back on that 28-day pit. And what they also surmise in this in this commentary is that what was happening was that 28-day period was too short in that it sort of captured the first wave of antibodies generated by short-lived plasma cells. And that if you kind of capture those kind of, they, there's a surge of them and then they decay. And if you capture it sort of on the way down, but don't capture that second wave, then it can look like you're sort of losing immunity and that the immune response is not very strong or durable. But if you do a four-month study, you would capture that second wave and that that is what these researchers did. So I would say overall, certainly we need more studies to understand better what's going on. But this is, I think, after a series of worrisome studies that sort of pointed to or, or raised the question of whether the immune response is not very durable or long-lived, this is one that at least looked at a longer period of time and seems to point to a longer duration of protection, which is good news. And we always like to hear good news in this pandemic. So, Well, absolutely. We'll take any kind of good news where we can get it from. And while on the topic of immunity, that really brings us into our third and final topic of Science Day, which is what's happening on the vaccine development side, the therapeutic development side, and really the types of drugs and treatments we're using. There's a lot of this in the news, of course, as vaccine development is going on. I think one, one thing that many people are not quite seeing is exactly how many drugs are in various types of trials, both on the therapeutics and vaccine side. So for our last topic of the day, Trina, could you just kind of walk us through, maybe we could do a tour of the numbers of what all is being done out there at the nexus of uh, science and medicine? Yeah, absolutely. So if we just kind of roll back to June, late June, there were 291 therapeutics under investigation to treat COVID-19. Here we are, beginning of September, and we have 365 therapeutics under investigation. And I'll say that the change isn't just in number, but that the early days of the pandemic were marked by taking things that we already had on the shelf and seeing if they could possibly work for COVID-19 or for, for fighting the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So we were focused on existing treatments and what could they do for us. But now we are moving into a phase where pharmaceutical companies and researchers are working on drugs that are specifically tailored for the virus. And because of that, where we should have treatments that are going to be better and not just sort of trying to retrofit. Okay, so that's one change that sort of happened over over the last couple of months, the number and also the types of um, treatments that are in um, under investigation. We have 247 in phase one or beyond, and that is up from 239 about a month ago. So they are moving along up, you know, through the trial process. And this again is is positive news. In fact, 
September looks like kind of a therapeutic trial readout month. It's possible that basically these these dates are from looking at clinicaltrials.gov when the researchers say when their trial is expected to end, but it's not clear whether we will actually get the readouts on these dates. But if you look at sort of a calendar, you see just day after day after day, lots of trials are expecting to read out. We'll see if we get them all, but even if we get some fraction, we will get a lot more information about what works and in whom and at what time. So this is positive. And I'll say not all of them are not obviously phase three trials. So we also will just learn information about safety and signals of efficacy. And so these kinds of things as well. So hopefully September will be an exciting time for therapeutics. Beyond that, we also are learning a little bit about what physicians are using in hospitals. And so some data that we look at from Edion in particular shows the use of different kinds of therapeutics in the hospital. And you can see sort of the pattern and our learning over time, what has fallen into disuse and what has fallen into use or become more used. And you can see that say hydroxychloroquine, super popular back in March, lots of hospitals using it, now almost no use at all. Remdesivir, still very little use, probably due to supply. There just isn't a lot of it out there. And then you've got the treatments that are in higher use, like acetaminophen, low molecular weight heparin, which is used to treat the coagulation issues, azithromycin, which is used for antibiotics as an antibiotic to sort of prevent bacterial infections that arise sort of secondary to a COVID-19 or to the, to the SARS-CoV-2 infection. And then you've got dexamethasone, which has skyrocketed in use due to studies that show that it could be helpful. So you get that kind of pattern where you're having doctors figure out what works. And like I said on an earlier podcast, we are getting better at treating patients. And so physicians are slowly learning what works, what doesn't. And you can kind of see that in in the pattern of medications that are being employed by physicians in hospitals. Beyond that, with the vaccine, we have several companies that have passed the two-thirds mark of trial enrollment, enrolling more than 20,000 of the 30,000 people they need for their phase two, phase three trials. And so we have, I think, a good number of enrollees getting their second dose. These Almost all of these vaccines, I think all of the ones that are being looked at in the United States are vaccines that will require two shots. So for these trials, you have people that are going to be enrolled. They need to get one shot and then 28, 21 days later, the second shot. So we have folks getting their second shot and then we'll be watching for evidence of protection from folks that received the vaccine versus people who received a placebo. And we'll be looking for safety effects as well. And that, or that's what the, the researchers will be looking for. Beyond that, there's been a lot of talk about the government telling states to be ready to distribute by November 1st. So we'll see, I know we'll see sort of a ramping up of planning and thinking through the very complicated distribution system that will accompany the the rollout of these vaccines across the United States. The FDA is holding an advisory meeting on October 22nd. The FDA commissioner has said that this is not a meeting meant to look at an application in particular it's just meant to to look at data and sort of have a public airing of the data so i think that's where we're at with the vaccines 
all the signals that the data that we've seen so far, according to virologists and other scientists, looks quote unquote good. You know, it's been positive for the most part. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see the big important trials, of course, are the phase three trials. And so that's where we'll really know what works and whether there are any um, safety concerns associated with them. Well, Trina, that was an excellent wrap of what is happening in terms of vaccines and uh, some of the science around that. For our listeners that want to dig a little bit deeper, we have several new insights out. Um, You can find them on our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. But while our listeners are looking at that, Trina, I was hoping maybe you could give a quick rundown of what some of our newest analysis is available to them. Yeah, sure, sure. So as Ben said, we publish new content every single week. This week, we have a piece on what's in it for the health industry coming out of the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention. So we look at sort of what the healthcare platforms are coming out of both of those events. We also have a piece looking at the FDA's emergency use authorization for plasma, which got a lot of media attention. But our take is really that EUA is not going to have a huge impact, although it could have quite an impact on clinical trials that are trying to tease out whether that treatment is actually used and if it is for whom and when. We also have a piece on telemedicine getting another boost in the proposed 2021 physician fee schedule. We've all been watching the explosion in telemedicine, wondering what happens next as healthcare providers open up and wondering especially how it will be reimbursed by both commercial and government payers. So that's kind of an example of some of the things that we've been putting out. If you're interested, sign up for our Next in Health newsletter and visit our website. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Trina, for giving us the rundown on Science Day. And that's Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.